Good evening. Dee is not here tonight, so you have me. Uh, my name is... <laughs> I appreciate the support. I don't presume to uh, be of his caliber, but, and he's gone, I don't know where he is, but uh, uh, I get to be with you tonight. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that you have given to us to worship together tonight. We thank you for this place. We thank you for the um, knowledge, the certainty that we have. Our sins are gone and our souls are set free. And so we just pray that you, we invite your spirit into this room tonight. We ask that you minister to each of us uh, as we um, just uh, study your word together and as we consider the sovereignty of God in our lives. We'd ask that you bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. My subject tonight is principles of power. It requires a bit of explanation. Um, but uh, before I get into that, I do have notes. I know some folks like notes, and I have them in the back, fill-in-the-blank type notes, which are our tradition. They're on that little table back there. If somebody wants, there you go. Maybe one can get them for, for everybody. I'm sure I have plenty. My uh, background is healthcare administration. I was a hospital administrator for... Um, well, I was, I've been in healthcare administration for the better part of 40 years, but I was a hospital administrator um, for about 25 of that. And I came to Albany in 1994 to be the clinical administrator at the hospital and left there in 2003 as the um, chief operator. And uh, so that's sort of the basis, the framework of which I, from which I come. And uh, when I was in school, I, um, after I, I got my, I'm a nurse, I'm an RN, and after that I went to um, graduate school to get a business degree, a, a master's in business administration. Now when you get a master's in business administration, you typically get it in a variety of emphasis. You can get it in one of several. One of them, for example, is accounting. You can get an MBA in accounting or you can get an MBA in business policy. You can get an MBA in law, um, business law. You can get an MBA in um, leadership. And the, there was a fairly new uh, discipline in business administration when I was going to school. It was called organizational dynamics. And organizational dynamics, also called organizational psychology, is a focus on the relationship within an organization. The premise being that whatever the organization is, from a large corporation to a family, to a church, to a social club, the effectiveness of that group in fulfilling its mission is largely determined by the effectiveness of the relationships within that organization. So, for example, after I left the hospital, I went to a hospital and worked with a group of intensive care nurses uh, on their work environment, on their relationships within the work environment, because they weren't able to do open heart surgery. They, they're, they're nurse, they were at war with each other, at war with the physicians, and they couldn't fulfill their mission 
because their relationships were damaged. And so part of my work at that time was to go into this unit and um, we defined standards and we did some training, but it's largely around motivation. And each, where, each place that I went, I've, I worked with banks, I worked with manufacturing companies, I worked with retail, mostly healthcare, and everywhere I went, I gave this presentation. And from my perspective, the um, principles of power are Sunday school applied to business. Most of the things that I did in negotiation, in um, working with organizations applied to business were concepts and principles that are taught in Sunday school. So it was a great fit for me because I enjoyed that and I'll be able to give a couple of examples of that as we go through this. Got to get myself organized here. I didn't teach that in school. I got my notes upside down, so I'm good now. So, um, well, and, and the thing that got me, I was going to make one more comment. The th thing that got me interested in this particular discipline is I was going to school and working at a hospital in 1986. And the hospital that we had had a strike. It was one of the first... Uh, hospitals in the Pacific Northwest that went through a strike starting in the 80s and it just led to a decade of strikes all over the Pacific Northwest. Um, there was a lot of happening in reimbursement in the hospitals at that time, there was a lot of mergers going on and people got upset by that. And so we, we had a two week, the nurses were out for two weeks and I was administration, I was sitting at the bargaining table. And we had a guy come in from the University of Colorado at Boulder, the business college, he was a consultant. And he told us that the, the work environment, the culture that we had prior to the strike was gone forever. We'd never get it back. But that we didn't need to be victims of that. And that we could together collectively design the kind of culture that we wanted to have. I was fascinated by that intentionally designing the kinds of character and the quality of relationships that you want to have in a work environment. And I built a whole practice around that. So the uh, discussion are the principles of power. And I've got 12 of them that I'll share with you this evening with some amendments. But number one is power is potential. Power is potential. So if you have a car sitting in your driveway, that's potential. It has the potential to accomplish something. If you have a degree um, in, in computer uh, science, that is potential. It gives you the capacity to do something. You have the skill to fix cars, that is potential. Number two, influence is uh, the manifestation of power. Influence is the manifestation of power. So influence is taking, getting in that car, turning the key, driving the ignition, and take, taking it down the road, going someplace, accomplishing something. Influence is taking that, that training that you have at school and applying that to a, in a productive way that will yield return to you to support your family and benefit to the organization. Influence is applying that skill and fixing cars to uh, earn a living for yourself. Number three, power and influence are expressed in authority. Power and influence are expressed 
in authority. And authority, it, it's, it's not often easy to determine if a person has power because it's, it's just potential, it's just there, it's invisible. Influence is more visible, but authority is the most perce- perceivable of the three. There's a legend, a story told about George Washington after the um, Revolutionary War. And the Congress of the country had not paid the soldiers or the officers. And, when they, and they were threatening mutiny. The officers wanted to um, disengage themselves from the country and allow uh, their enemies, uh, whoever they were at the time, to run rampant through the capital city uh, because they hadn't been paid. They wanted to use that as leverage to force Congress to pay them. And they wanted to make George Washington king. They wanted to make him, uh, give him power because they trusted him, because they knew him. And so um, there's a story of Washington writing a letter. And he came, they had a meeting to discuss this initiative. And he wrote a letter and he read his letter and the group was not moved by the letter. They weren't moved by his words, even though they respected the man. So he took his glasses out of his pocket and he began to rub the lenses with a rag. And he said, gentlemen, you must pardon me for I have grown not only gray, but blind in the struggle for my country. And he continued to rub the lenses. And from that gesture, it, the, the gesture of humility, the gesture of humanness that shocked the men in the room, they were shocked by it, and the room became quiet, and some of the officers began to cry, and Washington left. The whole thing was 15 minutes. And what happened from that was that they, turned, they um, discontinued their their uh, sedition, their desire to, to punish Congress, and they agreed to have more patience and wait for Congress to secure the funds to pay them. And, and so um, it was just, well, the thing about that was Washington had authority that was evident largely because of his actions previous, but he stood in the room, he cleaned his glasses, and he changed people's minds. It's an amazing story. And it's credited by historians as being why we are a democracy today and not another kingship. That's what we were used to at that time. We were used to kings. Number four, and you know, it's authority is given by God. Um, Luke, uh, I have to look at my, pull my own glasses out here. Luke 9, 1, and he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, Luke 9, 1. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, before the Great Commission. And when the spirit of truth comes, Jesus tells his disciples, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, John 16, 13. When I, when I was looking this up, there were over 100 references to authority given in the scriptures. Now, some of those were repeated um, and so I won't, obviously won't go through all of them. But there was one in particular that I've always found kind of fascinating. It's the next slide. 
And this is a story of Jesus being tempted in the desert. And Satan comes to tempt him. And he offers him, um, um, well, in this case, uh, in chapter 4 of Luke. uh, It's also described in chapter 4 of Matthew, coincidentally. And it says, the devil said to him, all this power, he's describing all of the kingdoms of the earth. And, and some apparently had some kind of uh, picture technology available with him at the time, showing him all the dominions and authority on the planet. And Satan says to him, all this power I will give to you and the glory of them. And then Luke adds this unique phrase, for it has been given to me and I can give it to whomever I will. It has been given to me and I can give it to whomever I will. It's a remarkable statement. You ever think when you read that statement, well, who gave it to him? Who gave him that authority? Well, Jesus did. Jesus is creator. John 1, uh, um, he he is the creator of all things. Um, He he was in the world and the world was made by him, John 1.10 and Colossians 1.16, for by him all things are are created. So Jesus created all those kingdoms that Satan was describing. And apparently, through some transaction through sin, Satan was given authority and dominion over those kingdoms, and he was offering it to Jesus if Jesus worshipped him. Kind of arrogant. I've always thought of that. Interesting exchange that Luke included and Matthew didn't. All right, well, there are multiple sources of power. Now, to begin with, let me say that when we talk about power, we talk about position power, different kinds of power, that God is the author of all of them and that he has perfection in all of these different sources. So when I'm talking about it from here on out, I'm talking about these capacities to influence at a human level. So number one, There are multiple sources of power. The first one is position power. Position power means power that I have by virtue of my position. I am a dad. I am the boss. I am a teacher. I am a policeman. Society gives each of these different positions a realm of power that is necessary for them to do their job. The second one is reward power. The second one is reward power. Reward power is the power that I have by virtue of my ability to administer reward. So reward, the most common one we think of is a paycheck. How, how long, if, let's say you have a job and that you go to work and you work 40 hours a week and at the end of every, two, every other weekend, every other Friday, you get a paycheck. I've asked this question of nurses and I said, How long would you continue your practice of going to work every day or 40 hours a week if the hospital discontinued its practice of administering a paycheck every other Friday? Now some, being gallant and noble souls, might work for a little while um, just out of the joy and the glory of serving humankind, but the reality is most people would go find something else to do 
without the reward that's attended. So the hospital influences behavior by administering a reward. We also do reward by relationship. So for example, um, paying a compliment is a kind of reward. Giving a person authority, giving a person a desired job is a kind of reward, giving a person a day off. And we administer rewards to other people because we want to influence their behavior. We wanted them to do more of what they've been doing. Okay? Reward power. The third one is coercive power. Coercive is the opposite of reward in that it is the withdrawal of reward or the administration of a punishment. Um, reward, uh, coercive power can be a discipline at work, can be a spanking to a child, it can be um, a tongue lashing. It can, uh, for oftentimes, it, between uh, important relationships, it's silence. It's a way of influencing that person to do or not to do some desired behavior. Coercive power. The fourth one is expert power. Expert power is the power that I have to influence another person by my expertise. Something, a skill that I have, um, an ability, I can, for example, operate Excel software. I can fix a transmission. I can paint a house. A skill set that comes that I use to influence a behavior, influence another person based upon a skill that I have, which is distinguished from the, the fifth one, which is information. Information power is the ability that you have to influence behavior based upon what you know. I often think of, um, well, in this church, for example, if you want to know anything about anything that's going on, who do you ask on three? One, two, three, Gene Krause. Gene Krause has ultimate knowledge, more than D, more than I suspect anybody else. Maybe Katie would be an exception. But there are a couple of people who just know what's going on in the church. When I have a question, I need somebody with a particular skill, I just call Jean, and she has never let me down. And so that information has its own capacity to influence. And I learned early in my career that it doesn't make sense to get on the wrong side of a secretary or the administrative assistant because they can make your life miserable no matter how much position power you think you have. All right, position power, or information, excuse me. The next one is charisma, or charismatic power. Charisma is the ability to influence people based upon a personality. So um, a manner of speech, or appearance, or um, just the ability to convince people, uh, capacity for persuasion is a kind of charisma or charismatic power. I have never been accused of having charismatic power. And the last one is referent power. It's the old saying, not what you know, but who you know. Who you know. Now you got seven. These are classic definitions of power or influencing in, among human beings. At this point, I would typically ask for a show of hands. I won't do it here. If you, recognizing that these are all interrelated, 
And this is strictly an intellectual exercise. If you had to pick one, which one would you consider to be the most influential source of power? We have position, we have reward, we have coercive, expert information, charisma, and referent power. Which of those would you pick? Generally speaking, when I ask that question and show of hands, the hands, the most hands go up for position power. And then followed by that maybe reward. And um, coercive factors in there significantly. In this particular list, the most powerful source of, we, of power that we have to influence another person is referent power because it's based on a relationship. It's based on a relationship. I have a son, 32 years old now, and he has uh, walked away from his faith. It's my desire, my prayer, and we pray for him often in our five days of prayer here, that he would return to his faith. There are certain things that I can do to influence his thinking. And I've tried them all. The most important thing that I can do is pray for him because this is a spiritual issue. But he will not be persuaded because I'm my position. He will not be persuaded because I'm his dad. He will not be persuaded because I have a checkbook or a wallet and I can, I can buy things for him. Doesn't matter. He can buy his own stuff now. He will not be persuaded because of my expertise. I have a certain uh, expertise in apologetics and I've laid it all on him. He knows everything there is to know about why a person should embrace the faith. He won't embrace faith because of information because of new facts discovered, for example, in, in uh, geology or in biochemistry. None of that impresses him. If he is persuaded, and I believe he will be one day, if he's persuaded, it will be because of reverent power, because he is convinced by my actions, by my behavior, that I am interested in his well-being. I was in town uh, in Albany, at a bank, and there was a guy at the next teller, and he um, greeted me as we left. We left at the same time, and then I went to the Home Depot and did something there and uh, got some stuff, come back. Well, he was waiting for me. He was also at Home Depot. And he came up to me and he said, are you a believer? I'd never met this guy before. I said, yeah, I am. He said, God spoke to me, but I'm not sure why, when we were at the bank, that I should talk to you. Is there something that I can pray for you for? And we were going through some challenge in Africa, and I said, yeah, you can pray for Africa. So we did. We stood there at the exit by Home Depot having a miniature prayer meeting. And then he said, amen. He said, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. There's something else going on you have a son? I said, yeah. He said, is he, is he embracing his faith? I said, no. He said, that's it. 
The word of God that I have for you is that he will come back to the faith. My wife clings to that story, to that conversation. And I believe that, that my son will return to the faith. It may not happen in my lifetime. But if I do, it will be because we pray for him, because the church prays for him, and because we've maintained a relationship with him. We've kept the conversation going. We've kept, and, I, and every exchange that I have with him, I attempt to convince him that I have his well-being at heart. If I, he'll ask me for things and I'll say, sometimes I'll say no. And there have been a couple of times when I've said no because I believe it will destroy your character and you know where I came from. You know where I'm coming from because you grew up with me and you know my, my heart on these things. Anymore, he doesn't ask those kinds of questions. But I believe that he will come to faith because, and the, and the influence, the thing that I can do to influence that is a relationship. All right, number, next slide here. Here's the, um, some par- sources of, are more powerful than others. We already did that, but if you want to fill in the blank. Here's the point that I'm making. Here's the key slide for the night. Power is a manifestation of trust. And the degree that I influence you is the degree to which you trust me. Therefore, if I want to increase my influence with you, I need to conduct myself in a manner that makes it possible for you to trust me. Power is a manifestation of trust. And the degree to which I influence you is the degree to which you trust me. Therefore, if I want to increase my influence with you, I will conduct myself in a manner that makes it possible for you to trust me. Here's where Sunday school fits in the business world. Act with integrity. Follow through on what you say you're going to do. Be kind to people. Treat people as you would be treated. All the stuff we learn in Sunday school because it affects the relationship. It affects the capacity, the ability of people to trust me. I had a physician once. We had an emergency. And this uh, physician was stressed by this emergency. The patient was dying. And he screamed at this nurse to go get something. And she said, it's on it. I've already called. It's on its way. And she responded very appropriately. But she was boiling mad. And she wanted that physician to be punished for his unprofessionalism in this emergency. Now, this was a long time ago. It was fairly typical for physicians to react strongly in when they were stressed. Um, and so, you know, a lot of nurses would just blow it off. It's just the way it is. This nurse was not willing to do that. And she wanted to report him to a committee. There's a committee in the hospital called the, um, uh, well, it's a physician's board. And they manage things like hiring and discipline of physicians. She wanted it to be taken to this committee and have this guy sanctioned by this committee. And I said, would it be, what would it take to avoid that? She said, if he would just apologize, acknowledge what he did, 
hurt me and was wrong and makes a commitment not to do it again. I'm fine with leaving it alone. So I saw the guy in a in the hospital. We were we were standing by the cafeteria. And there was a gurney there I'll never forget. And I talked to him and I said, I'd like you to talk to this nurse and I'd like you to make I'd like you to mend the fence with her and I'd like you to apologize. He he acknowledged that what he did was not appropriate. And he says, normally I wouldn't do that. Then you need to apologize. And he says, nah, she's making too big of a deal. Just let it go. She needs to grow up. This is, this is the reality of working in healthcare. I said, this nurse typically works a night shift. And the night shift uh, often um, are presented with clinical situations of patients that are sort of judgment calls. Shall I call the physician or shall I not? And um, sometimes um, the more cautious nurses will, will err on the side of caution and call the physician. And sometimes the physicians get irritated because you didn't need to call me for that. But it's, you know, it's kind of dicey either way because you can't predict what's going to happen with a patient. I said, this patient, this nurse typically works a night shift. To what extent are you willing to let this exchange, this damage in this relationship, affect that nurse's judgment when she's dealing with one of your patients and whether she's willing to call you or not? And I remember he pounded his fist on the mattress of this gurney where we were sitting, and he said, I hate it when people say stuff like that. I said, am I wrong? No, and he apologized, and they were able to repair the relationship. Power is a manifestation of trust, and the degree to which I influence you is a degree to which you trust me. Number eight in your notes, influence is often determined by interests. Influence is often determined by interests. So let's say we got Ben back here sitting in the sanctuary. Ben is a he is an agronomist. He, he's a nursery man. And he raises plants. Now let's say that I went to school and I wanted to be working in a nursery. Anywhere in the United States. How much influence would Ben have on my life under that circumstance? Probably not very much. There's a lot of nurseries in the United States. I could work probably... Maybe, well, thousands, certainly. Ben could probably tell you. So not much under that situation. Now let's say that I narrowed the um, search to a nursery west of the Rocky Mountains. Relatively speaking, how much influence would Ben have in my life? Well, still not very much. A lot of nurseries west of the Rocky, but maybe a little more than than before. If I narrowed that search to Oregon, how, relatively speaking, how much influence would he have? Well, more, a little bit, still lots of nurseries in Oregon. If I narrowed it to Jefferson, Oregon, how many nurseries are there in Jefferson? Is there more than one? Not more than one. So how much influence would Ben have in my life under that situation? Well, a lot. There's only one nursery in Jefferson. Who decides 
how much influence Ben has in my life under that situation. I do. See, the thing of it is about power is we tend to get, we tend to convince ourselves when times are hard that we're stuck and that we can't get out of it. But the reality is we make choices about how we live our lives, where we live our lives, and what we do in our lives that we control beyond circumstances. I'll amplify that with the next point. So means control is the person who influences my life controls the interests that I, that I desire. If I want to work in a hospital, if I want to do a certain kind, if I want to pursue a particular hobby, if I want to pursue a particular career path, the people that I put in my life will influence my success in that. Related to that, there's no such thing as absolute power. This is the part that I meant about victimhood. There's no such thing as absolute power. Well, what about the Jewish prisoner in a Nazi death camp? Doesn't that soldier exercise absolute power of life and death, certainly? And the re- response is, there, was nothing, there would be nothing that would prevent that Jewish prisoner of war to spit in the face of that German prison guard insofar as the Jewish prisoner were willing to bear the consequences. We're told in Psalms, fear not him who can destroy the body. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, fear not him who can destroy the body but rather fear him who can destroy the soul in hell. So this, this principle is true of anyone, but it is particularly true of Christians. Now, it may not change what I consider to be reasonable options, particularly if I don't want to die, but there are lots of circumstances less than that where I have options that I don't consider because I get focused on my problem. I get focused on the Uh, the seeming limited options that I have to repair. Okay, number nine. There is a historical nature to power. There is a historical nature to power. There was a time when I have two daughters, Emily and Elizabeth, and they're 18 months apart. And there was a time, particularly right around 12, 13, where they were at war with each other, very competitive, both very strong, very loud people. The decibel level in our house rises immeasurably when they're both in the house at the same time. But they were angry, and they were getting personal in their words, attacking each other. And I remember I went into the room and I can remember where I stood. There, there was a bunk bed in this particular bedroom and I was leaning against this bunk bed and I was weeping. And I said to my girls, there will come a time when I won't be here and your mother won't be here. And there will come a time when you have a crisis in your life and you'll need your sister 
because she knows you better than anybody else on the planet. And she is invested in your well-being more than anybody else on the planet except for your parents if you don't destroy it now. If you don't destroy that relationship by petty disagreements when you're 12 and 13 or 15 and 16 or 21 and 25. If you don't destroy the relationship now, you can preserve it because power is a manifestation of trust. And I trust you when you speak to me with grace. I trust you when you treat me as you want to be treated. Two years ago, I was on vacation. I got a phone from Elizabeth. She'd been in an accident on a frozen highway in New Mexico. Her family, she said, we've been in a terrible accident, please pray. It was on uh, Marco Polo. So it was just a short video clip, click, it was gone. So we prayed. And I said, this is not, this, no, this isn't working for me. I called her back. I said, what's going on? And she said, we've been in a terrible accident and my kids are injured, my husband is unconscious and you know, I just don't know what to do. We're out in the middle of, it took an hour for an ambulance to get there in the middle of New Mexico. I said, well, look around the room and tell me if everybody is breathing. And so she, it took a minute. She had to, had to collect her thoughts enough to do that. So she did. So we ended up, they heli, uh, um, helicoptered our, our granddaughter to, um, to the hospital and Emily, when she heard about it in Africa, moved, was prepared to move all of Africa to be with her sister. And frequently, since that conversation when they were 12 and 13 years old, they've said to me, Dad, you don't realize what an impact that had on how we treat each other. And to myself, I say, oh, yes, I do because I know how this relationship works. I know how our ability to influence each other works. Don't tell them I said that. Number 10, admitting a mistake, admitting that you made a mistake increases your power. Some of you, probably most of you are old enough to remember Jimmy Carter and the 1975 presidential campaign where he had an interview with Playboy magazine and he uh, admitted that he lusted in his heart after women. Remember that? The press blistered him. Said, what a ridiculous thing to do for a presidential candidate to have a, a conversation of that type with such a magazine. It was a different country then. So he had a press conference. He said, you're right. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. I was trying to reach a constituency that read that magazine, but in so doing, I diminished the office, and I apologize. I, I won't do that again. People who study said, such things said that Carter, who was uh, behind, I believe, Ford in the polls at that time, spiked, and he continued to climb all the way to the White House because admitting people... When you admit that you make a mistake, people trust you. Why? Because you're human. 
You can, it's like George Washington taking these glasses. You communicate your humanity, and people trust that. People embrace that. Number 11, forgiveness is empowering. Forgiveness is empowering, largely because I am released from the burden of thinking embittered thoughts toward that person who has offended me. And again, this is a point that I often make in business setting. Forgiveness is empowering. I had a guy come up to me during a break. He was a chief technology officer. And he said to me, how do you do that? I, I just got hurt to go too deep. How do you forgive? And so I said, well, I, we can't do that here, but why don't you come over to my house? And we had a Bible study. It went on for two months. And I'll never forget the, the night that he came into my house for our meeting. He had a stack of my books in his lap. He put both hands on the top. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so we talked about what that meant. But his, it was one of the few people that I know who have pursued faith on strictly an intellectual basis. But he recognized that his own incapacity to forgive on a human level and that he needed the help of God to forgive because it's a hard thing to do and particularly when the, when the hurts are deep. Next slide. My ability to reach people with the gospel is connected by their ability to trust me. My ability to reach people with the gospel is connected to their ability to trust me. Next slide. My ability to influence having lasting influence with my kids is based upon their ability to trust me. It goes with all my family. My ability to have a lasting influence with my family members is connected to their ability to trust me. Next slide. My ability to have an influence with anyone socially for any reason is connected to their ability to trust me. The most effective source of power that we have is based on a relationship. I have a picture in my house from traveling to Africa. Periodically, I go to Africa, we'll come through a, a city in Europe, either London or Paris or sometimes um, Brussels. And coming back, this trip can be stressful, and so I'll take a couple of days just to kind of unwind. And on this particular trip, I went to Paris and visited Normandy, the beach where D-Day occurred. And there was a picture in a breakfast restaurant where I had breakfast of uh, the boys from Easy Company, the 506 Airborne Infantry, 101st Airborne Division. It was a story... Uh, uh, Stephen Ambrose wrote their story in the, in the book Band of Brothers, made into a series of a, a movie by uh, uh, Steven Spielberg. And Ambrose, when he was researching the book, was researching the motivation that people had to climb out of a foxhole under fire. In Russia, if you didn't climb out of the foxhole under fire, you got shot. We didn't do that. So what was it that, that convinced you as a GI to climb out of that foxhole when the order was given to charge in the face of withering enemy fire? What was it that made you willing to put 
your life in jeopardy. And he discussed several possibilities. Maybe it was patriotism. Maybe it was training. Maybe it was the relationship with your officers. Maybe it was the desire to go home. And these GIs would say, all of that is true. All, I wanted to go home. I loved my flag, fly it, up, uh, fly it from my house every day. But that's not what got, out of, got me out of that foxhole. What got me out of that foxhole was the knowledge that in the next foxhole and the one after that and the one after that were guys who depended on me not to mess up. And I wasn't going to let them down. And that's what got me out of that foxhole. Above all, love one another deeply. For love overcomes a multitude of faults. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It is not coincidence, I believe, that the greatest commandment we're given in Scripture, love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's that conviction and that desire to, main, to establish and maintain fellowship with people that I may not have anything in common with that will make us effective as evangelists with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great work that you've called us to do. We thank you for the words that you have revealed in your holy scriptures who alone can make us wise. And we're grateful, Lord, for the privilege that we have for fellowship tonight. I pray that this, this discussion will ruminate in people and folks' minds about things that we can do with intention to build on relationships that perhaps have been fractured, to build on relationships perhaps that don't exist to the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask in your holy name, amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.